Before we start today's episode, we'd like to say a big hello to our listeners in Germany, the United States, Scotland, and also Sri Lanka. It's crazy for us to know that people from all over the world have been enjoying the podcast. And now we want it to get even bigger and go further. But to do that, we really need your help. To get the word out about where are you taking me, we really are relying on your reviews. Five-star reviews on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening means we can keep bringing you stories from all over the world. We can't do this without your help. So please, if you could take the time to leave us a review, it would be very much appreciated. Now, here's our latest episode. Morning, Gabby. What's the time? Time is about a quarter to four in the morning. I'm sitting on a train that's about to click-clack its way from Mandalay to Sipo in the kind of northeast of Myanmar. Yeah, how long is that going to take? Twelve hours. Why are we doing this? <laughs> because you really want to see one bridge we, on the way. We I'm both excited to do this. <laughs> I'm excited to go to Sipo, and you're excited to see a bridge. Now, how easy was it to get on the train this morning? Oh, it's pretty easy. It was just a case of a platform change. No one's checked our tickets yet, but um, there's a prison on board, so you know, that's good. There is a prison on board. When we got on the platform this morning, there's about 30-odd prisoners all handcuffed together, sitting on the ground. Um, they've got their own carriage, thankfully. <laughs> yep. Nothing can go wrong, right? Nothing can go wrong. I'm very excited. Yay! <laughs> Never before have I been presented with a situation that made me feel like I had just stepped into the synopsis of a thriller film. <laughs> I'm a morning person, but that was way too much for me. Yeah. Way too much. The worst kind of alarm. Hello, my name is Gabby Lyons, and thank you for joining us for yet another episode of Where Are You Taking Me? My name is Nick King. You can find more from us on Instagram at Where Are You Taking Me Pod, also Facebook, and we're now on Spotify as of about two weeks ago, so you can find us there as well. So for today's episode, we are sitting on the rooftop of our hostel in Nang Shui, which is the main town on the banks of Inlay Lake. To one side of us, there are glistening gold pagodas that are pretty much lining the horizon. They are really quite astonishing. To the other side, there are no doubt hundreds of locals rowing long-tail wooden boats along the lake, meandering through floating bamboo villages. And if you listen extra closely, you may even be able to hear the hourly news being broadcast on the PA system down to the streets below. As we mentioned at the end of our last episode, we weren't 100% sure until we got here if we were going to be able to bring you an episode at all, if it would be a bonus or a full episode or anything we might get. Why? Well, Myanmar is an incredible country, but at the moment it's got a very mixed reputation. Just a quick little bit of history. The country has been under military rule up until only two and a half years ago. And since then, it's been dealing with a pretty traumatic refugee crisis. As a result, Tourism has plummeted, but we cannot stress enough, don't let that put you off visiting. A lot of people that we have spoken to have said, why are you going to Myanmar? Isn't it dangerous? But in this episode, we really want to show you how beautiful and incredible this country is and how dramatically it opposes what you might be reading in the news. We've got plenty of people to introduce you to, so let's not waste any more time. I've collected some pieces. I'm also to like to collect uh, some old things. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my name is Labo, and the store name is uh, the Ponton. There we started in 1936. 
since my grandpa. We are the third generation, and the, the, my niece, fourth generation. Can you show me a couple of items? Some pieces are the, come from the Kachin state, the northern part of Myanmar. They have a jade mine and the ember mine. The for example, like that one is an earplug made with amber. It looks like a large candle. It's about three inches yeah, long in yeah, amber. Yeah. What, when would this be used? The round about 1930, 1920 at the time, they use it. And what is the significance of amber? There's a lot of amber jewellery here and also medallions. Why is that significant? Uh, some amber is inside uh, some insect, most valuable. Like Jurassic Park. Like Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> What's another item in the store that you can show me? The those are the lime box. For we put bitter leaf, bitter nut for chewing, and the lime box is like that. It's come from Shan State. Like this type is a Myanmar style, and most of the people are they use it in the bronze things. The, the rich person is that they use it the silver one. How do you know how old something like this is? Is there any indicator on the actual item? Uh, yeah. Some pieces are, it have a date in here. This one is a 1281 Burmese period. Now one is a 1386. It's a hundred over hundred years. Do you have a favorite item in the shop? You've got thousands of items here. Is there something here that's a favorite of yours? Yeah, my favorite things is a little expensive. This one is a, the sauce. But the inside is a, some design. It's a, the Jataka, the story of Buddha. And that this one also, we put it in the iron and the silver the design. Is it. And how old is the sword? This one is a colonial time, the round about 1935, like that, yeah. Time is a British government gift to the village headmaster for good work. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Labo was one of the very first people we met in Yangon, and I'm glad we met him because he started to change our opinion about Myanmar. When we first arrived in Yangon, we... To be fair, we just weren't all that impressed, were we? No, it was... It's one of those horrible feelings, a sinking feeling that you get when you arrive in a city, wherever you are in the world, and you instantly feel watched, isolated, you feel like you stand out like a sore thumb, and you just feel dirty and uncomfortable and instantly you just want to leave and that's really how Yangon made me feel. Yangon is a busy city, it's, it's cluttered. If you're staying around the Chinatown area where most of the hostels and accommodation are, there are high-rise buildings and narrow streets full of cars. There's footpaths that are covered in vendors, people trying to push past each other. A lot of the men are chewing betel nut, which if you know what that is, it's a local tobacco product. They chew and then spit out onto the street. The city itself feels quite claustrophobic and I'm not afraid to admit I feel like for the first two days we spent a fair bit of time almost hiding in our hostel even though we didn't openly admit it to each other mm. and we got to a point where we thought if this doesn't get any better shortly maybe we'll just leave the country yeah we'll, we'll skip it especially as a woman for a lot of female solo travelers that are out there I instantly felt that I needed to cover my shoulders. I wanted to cover my red hair. I was making sure that I was wearing pants that went down to my ankles just so that I didn't feel like I was being watched every step that I took down the street. It was, it was really uncomfortable. To give it some credit, Yangon has got some amazing pagodas. Mm. There's some great British colonial architecture, but we went there for the culture. But overall, we spent three days there, and it just felt kind of cultureless. Mm. Except... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Nick. <laughs> Except for one item that I spotted in the markets, 
which are puppets. Everywhere. Puppets are everywhere. And when we say puppets, what we mean is more like traditional marionette-style puppets. A whole bunch of strings that come off a cross that's balanced so that these puppets look like they're walking We're or dancing. We're talking Burmese Pinocchio, aren't we? <laughs> Burmese Pinocchio. But they're beautifully dressed in sequins, traditional outfits, a very Thai influence is the best way I think I could describe it. Beautiful wooden puppets. Obviously, in the markets... They go for about $2. Yeah, they're souvenirs. (laughs) They're souvenirs. But it did get me to thinking, if puppets are a part of the culture here, as they are in Vietnam, being the water puppets have such a massive influence on the Vietnamese culture, where can I find puppets in Myanmar? Yeah, we weren't going to miss out on a puppet show for a second country running. At the same time, time, though, (laughs) we also didn't expect to find that show in a suburban lounge room. It is a tradition to open the show with a spirit medium puppet paying homage to the guardian spirit of the arts and the spirit of the world so that the show continues without mishap and the weather remains fair. A group dance of the handmaidens follow this dance of the medium. Enjoy the show. For the puppeteers, we never think uh, the puppet is like a wooden doll or wooden times. We believe that they have soul and alive. That is why we have to make everything like people. So now you are in Tui U Myanmar puppetry home, and I am U Tui or Mr. Tui, the founder of the theatre, and. Mrs. Wu, my wife, we founded together Tui Wu Myanmar and doing this uh, almost 20 years now. Let me just set the scene. Mr. Tui's puppet home isn't anywhere near the centre of Yangon. About a 30-minute walk out into the suburbs, down a couple of derelict-looking alleyways, his son stands in full-performance blacks, opening a sliding metal door. At this stage... I was a little concerned and wasn't feeling super comfortable about climbing the first flight of stairs. But on your arrival at Mr. Tway's front door, you are greeted by warm smiles, wonderfully ornate wooden puppets, gold-plated frames adorning the walls with awards from all across the globe. Only once you take your place in one of the eight plastic stools do you realise that behind the satin curtains that embody the shape of a stage, Mrs. Wu is in her family kitchen making tea. So uh, after marriage, myself and my wife, Mrs. Wu, we are visiting a lot, especially in Thailand, also in Vietnam, Indonesia, in Southeast Asia. We saw not only puppet shows, many performances in there, and we decided to do a theatre in Yangon in Myanmar, uh, when we are saving so and so amount, we will start. In the beginning, I did start in downtown, hiring a big hall. But you know, tourism in my country are not like in the neighboring country, like in Thailand, not like in Vietnam. So I am ashamed to say you, but you know, in Myanmar, people in tourism, they are not happy to promote 
Not only puppetry, all kinds of the traditional performing arts are declined. This is very sad situation. That's why I am trying to do a professional theater just for performance. But they are not uh, supporting or promoting. So I had struggled very hard for three years and I lost everything. So I am very proud of showing uh, authentic Myanmar puppet show. When Mr. Tway says he's performing an authentic puppet show, he truly means it, and he's incredibly researched on the topic. Traditional Myanmar puppetry has been around for hundreds of years, but sadly, traditional puppeteers are slipping into history. I found five masters and their families who are still working in puppetry or doing performance in the Pakura Festival. But this is very sad, the masters are quite old. So in the beginning, five masters, but now two masters passes away, just three masters left. But they had son and daughter. And also what I am lucky is I had son and daughter. Every day they learn by sight and hearing. We notice that they are playing with puppets. Where some kids might have grown up with a dad having a dorky hobby and felt embarrassed, Mr. Tway's kids fell in love with puppets. And for Tway, this has reignited his motivation to keep puppetry alive. Now we are here is because of those two kids, they are involving. Otherwise, I will change my career after I lost everything, maybe after five years. When we notice that they are willing to involve and then uh, I brought them international festival even especially uh, even in Southeast Asia international festival and events so whenever I was there but on the night we arrived at Mr. Tway's home there were only six of us in the audience all travelers crammed into a small living space with wide eyes and a sense of excitement to be let into one of Myanmar's best kept cultural secrets we as travellers are the only people who keep Mr. Tway's puppet home operating. We are doing the traditional show for tourists because they like it, but no Myanmar people are happy to see. And traditionally, we are telling only Buddha story. So they know everything. So they are not interested more. They thought those stories are boring. And also the storytelling style is very simple we are not changing uh, except uh, the elder people they like to see because they like this style but for the younger people this is boring mr tway is incredibly proud of his country and his culture the way he put it there is nothing to be ashamed of being poor because our country is lagging behind in development we should never be ashamed to declare ourselves as myanmar people i try my best but Myanmar is very expensive, especially if you hire a venue or you build a theater or to build a theater is very, very expensive. So I can't afford it only myself. The new government, they are just two years and they are very busy. They are now solving the peace between the ethnic groups. This is their first priority. So first priority is a peace. Second priority is a education. I hope. Also, I had a big dream. Here in Myanmar, Ministry of Travel are combined to Ministry of Hotel. The Ministry of Gacha is combined to the Ministry of Religious Affairs, Roundway. So now, Myanmar tourism is falling. 
I hope the tourists to visit to Myanmar to see the Myanmar traditional puppet show. I think you were very smitten with puppets by the end of that show. It's kind of embarrassing to admit out loud, but uh, there were two young girls in front of us, being the ages of seven and ten, and I think I was more excited to play with the puppets than the children. Yeah, you clawed your way to the front <laughs> at the end of the show. I thought there was going to be blood. Thankfully, there wasn't. <laughs> but the show itself, for being in such a small environment and it's all passion, I, I can't recommend it highly enough. Yeah, it was incredibly fun and it was, it was probably my favourite part of Yangon. That being said, if you are planning to visit Mr. Tue and Mrs. Wu and sit in their lounge room, you do have to contact them in advance. They do have a website, it's all in English. All you have to do is jump on, Google Tue Wu Puppetry Home. He has an email there, shoot him an email, and I'm sure he'll be more than happy to welcome you into his lounge room. chanting you can hear now is from the Damayangi temple in Bagan. A man is knelt down on a bamboo mat reading from an old tattered book of prayers. Along the banks of the Arawadi River there are over 2,000 temples scattered throughout the Bagan archaeological area some of which date back to the 11th century. This is an incredibly spiritual place, so if you do plan to visit, remember to allow the Burmese people their space to pray. We started our journey in Yangon. We travelled north to the temples of Bagan, across to Mandalay, to the hill country of Sipo, and now we're in Inlay Lake. After speaking to a number of people that have been here, we were particularly worried about the food. There's this huge myth the food in Myanmar is going to be terrible, and we're happy to say we don't agree. The food here has been fantastic. If you think about the countries that lie on the borders of Myanmar, you've got influences from Thailand, India, Bangladesh, Laos, China, like, Think of that, it's a melting pot here in Myanmar of all these incredible spices and flavours. I've had some of the best curries I think I've ever had before. Like, I, I'm going to say it, Myanmar has had the best food of our entire trip thus far. Wow, I hope none of our Vietnamese listeners are hearing that because they might not <laughs> let you back in the country. As a vegetarian, it's been exceptionally friendly for you. You've been on cloud nine. The amount of times we've walked out of a restaurant where you've been glowing because you've had all sorts of things that don't contain chicken or lamb or beef. <laughs> it has been very special like being a Buddhist country predominantly that has meant a lot of tofu. It's meant a lot of morning glory which is your favourite. Mm -hmm. It's meant lots of chickpeas. It's just been a lot of fresh food as well. We mentioned beforehand that there are floating gardens particularly here in Inlay Lake which means the farmers out there are growing tomatoes, carrots, watermelons floating on mounds of earth on a lake. As you're out on the boats you see tomatoes floating past you. <laughs> yeah, you do that have fallen off the boats. Tomatoes that actually taste like mm -hmm. tomatoes, it's worth looking forward to. Mm -hmm. It's really nice to be presented with fresh fruit again. That's something we haven't had throughout most of Asia, but to actually be offered fresh fruit and vegetables has been uh, really special. So if, if you're worried about food in Burma or in Myanmar, don't be. 
It's phenomenal. Not to mention, Gab, being super affordable. Hmm. Something else you might not be aware of in visiting Myanmar is the language. Lots of people know how to say hello in lots of different languages, whether that be konnichiwa, guten tag, xinxiao. We're learning little bits of language as we move along, but nowhere along the lines have we come across Mingalaba. No, it's a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> Even after three weeks, I can't get my mouth around saying kaizu pa, which means thank you. It's a really challenging language, but don't let that put you off because the Burmese people are working pretty hard to simplify their language for travellers. Okay, okay, be honest, raise your hand if the idea of travelling to Asia is a little intimidating because you're afraid of the language barrier. I, for one, would raise both hands if I wasn't holding the microphone. Before we set off, I didn't speak a word of Vietnamese, Malaysian, Khmer or Filipino, let alone Burmese. Again, raise your hand if you speak Burmese or you know someone that does. Yeah, that's what I thought. Hey, if you did put your hand up, Mingalabar, and thanks for listening. If you are thinking of a trip to Myanmar, the good news is the town of Sipo are doing their best to water down the language barrier. You see, businesses in Sipo have a unique system of nicknames to help travellers like you and I, and it all started with Mr. Charles. Mr. Charles opened his guest house in 1995. The business took off, and the name was Catchy. Now, if you take a right turn, then a left, and another right from Mr. Charles, you're going to find Mr. Shake. And he sells, well, shakes. Milkshakes, fruit shakes, in fact, any beverage you prefer shaken, not stirred, he's your guy. Say, what are you talking about? Sufficiently bloated on lactose and watermelon, it's time to shred some of those kilos. Head back in town to meet Mr. Bike. Push bikes, motorbikes, town bikes. Mr. Bike is your man for bike rentals and... Laundry, weirdly enough. Now that you've worked up a hunger, it's eating time. I might mention the food in Sipo, it's pretty good. Mr. Wok has your Chinese delights covered down by the river. Or, if you can't decide, maybe just drop by Mr. Food in the centre of town. He sells food, but you probably guessed that already. The Mr. Book bookshop sells Mr. Books' books to any Mr. Miss, Madam or Sir such as yourself looking for something to read. And finally, Mrs. Popcorn's Garden sells... Well, Mrs. Popcorn also sells food. We didn't even see popcorn on the menu, but pay her a visit anyway because her sham noodle soup is so good. <laughs> Sipo are doing their part to make it easier for native English speakers to get by, but the good news is we actually haven't had any language issues here in Myanmar thus far. Many people speak some English already, and plenty of others are trying really hard to learn. And let's face it, their English is going to be way better than your Burmese. Am I right? Yeah, it's Anaka is you for Samprote and the feeling cool. Mm-hmm. It's there really good. So yeah. mostly with Tanaka, so we don't need to put sun cream. A lot of women wear the Tanaka like almost like a design on their cheeks, yes. on their forehead. Yeah. Is this like a form of makeup, it's a form of Burmese beauty, or is it just for sunscreen? Yeah. Normally, sun just a little bit. Female also may, or woman, or man, it's everybody so can make. So I show you and put it on Tanaka. So I like that. So what is happening is like a block of wood is being rubbed on a massive stone block with a little bit of water. So now it uh, put it on Tanaka tree. Like that, so ready to put on your body, face, or everywhere. 
And how do I apply Seneca to my face? How do I do that? So I show you your mm-hmm. face. Is it okay? Oh, so. on me? <laughs> yeah. If you were uh, sure. put, put it or mm-hmm. uh, finger on your face or design it wherever you want. Is okay. it okay? Yeah. A little bit, you're nice. Okay, on the yeah. nose. You wear on the neck, on the hand, on the back. Is the whole body if you want. So you wow. need to put. Just stick to my face. <laughs> yeah. The Tanaka, you see it everywhere. In fact, a lot of the places you stay, you'll find that there's like a slab and the timber and the water and everything to use it. And it makes sense too. It's great sun protection. And when you put it on, though, it's quite obvious. You'll see men and women everywhere in Myanmar are wearing it. It kind of looks like almost like a really light tan-coloured clay that kind of sets on your face and it does the job. So give it a go if you see it out there. A massive thank you as well to Poe, who is a total sweetheart for showing me the ropes and also making sure I looked pretty as I exited the hostel for the day. And we are glad to say that once we left behind the busy streets of Yangon and Mandalay, there was a noticeable difference in the way that people responded to our presence. They became warmer, smilier, friendlier, and incredibly hospitable. So hospitable, in fact. There were even a couple of moments that we felt slightly uncomfortable. Do you remember we went out, we went to get Indian one night for dinner, and we didn't realise the restaurant was huge, it was split over three stories, and we walked in looking like backpackers, so... I've got shorts with stains on. I've been sweating all day. I've got a backpack. My hair is an absolute mess. Mm -hmm. And they escorted us past two levels of locals to the VIP dining room, which was just kind of like a a, a fancy sort of room with air conditioning. We're like, no, we just want to sit down there with the locals. But they're trying so hard to make a good impression on tourists. Even though it made us a little bit uncomfortable, we went along with it because... I think they're just trying their hardest to make you feel welcome. Mm. I think there's an element of it as well, again, only being uh, recently opened, only two and a half years now, that the people want to make sure you are getting the very best experience in Myanmar. We have had another situation where we were told, don't use those chopsticks, here have some fresh ones. Yeah, that was a strange one as well. That was strange, but I think it comes from wanting to make sure that no one gets food poisoning, everyone's eating clean. I think it's all about promoting the very best experience for you when you come to Myanmar. One thing to remember when travelling in Myanmar is that due to the political climate, the country's only really been open for tourism, like super actively, for a couple of years. So they're very much learning the ropes on how this all works as much as you are learning the ropes on Myanmar and how it works as a country. (laughs) A lot of people have been more or less silenced for years, so don't be surprised if somebody grabs you and just wants to tell you their story. The amount of times this happens, and has happened to us, mm-hmm. has been phenomenal. If we recorded them all, this episode would go for three weeks. Because <laughs> people just want to tell you what's been going on, and generally, they're just so happy to have you there. I think my favourite was a gentleman that stopped us in Sipo in the middle of the market. I was shopping for a traditional longi skirt, and he just stopped us and said, Look at my teeth. Aren't they clean? I, I remember to brush my teeth. They're very good teeth. <laughs> and remember, he just he wanted, he desperately wanted us to know, and now you know as well, he'll be, he'll be stoked to know how far this message has gone, mm-hmm. that he's in his early 70s and he still plays tennis <laughs> frequently. He was so sweet. Yeah, he, he really wanted to get that out there. Look, we did hear one local story from our time in Myanmar, which was just so captivating. So much so, we had to record a portion of it to share with you. It's a personal story on a national scale and it has one of the best cliffhanger endings you're ever likely to hear. You see, what happened was the Burma was close up to the outside world because, you see, 1996, the military government, they declared 1996 to be visit Myanmar. There were lots of tourists to come. So uh, tourists came 
in town, of course, they found out there's a palace, there's a history, so they wanted to know. We want them to know our history. But of course, we had to warn them not to repeat the story that we are telling because we would get into trouble. So they do, they kept to their word, they didn't tell, so we were safe. Overgrown vines wreak havoc over the six-foot brick wall at the front gate. An old rusted padlock is opened once a day to welcome visitors onto the palace grounds. After following a long, windy stone driveway with wild flowers and weeds paving the way, you'll reach the unassuming Tudor-style building. Blackened pillars and a tiled porch frame the home, which now looks out to wild, unruly long grass and trees in dire need of pruning. But standing on the polished tiles is the woman you have come here to meet, with her glasses perched perfectly on the end of her nose, her hair pulled up into an antique bronze hairpin, and the traditional longy skirt masking her steps. Fernholm opens her private abode and welcomes you to learn the mysteries that coat its peeling walls. So you see the architect is very westernized, built in 1924. So in uh, six years' time, 2024, this house will be 100 years old. Donald and I, we are preserving it because it belongs to history. You see, even the people of Sipo, they don't know our history. Now they are coming. So not only the people in Sipo, or from all over Burma. We even have generals, the younger generals, of course, coming to listen to our story. And they are very surprised that this happened to an ethnic leader. They, do, they don't know about it. You see... The previous owner of the palace disappeared. The last prince of Sipo, and that is where this story begins. With an unusual love story, which involves an Austrian princess, isolation and secrecy. The last prince of Sipo was an incredibly intelligent man. Noticing potential for gem mining in the Shan state, he moved to Colorado to complete his education. And in the process, fell in love with an Austrian student named Inga. 1953, after getting married in Denmark, and next year, 54, the prince brought his bride to Sipo. That's why Sipo has an Austrian for our princess. No problem, because Burma too was used to the British occupation. And uh, when Inga got here, because she lives in Sean Street, her husband is Sean, so she adapted herself and also learned to speak and write Sean and Burmese during the Eight years she lived in Sipo. That's why the people of Sipo, they accept her and they like her because they could talk to her in both Shan and Burmese. But a life of happily ever after was not in the royal couple's favour. Eight years after their marriage and the birth of two daughters, the prince was called away to a parliamentary meeting in Rangoon. He didn't know it at the time, but this meeting would not only alter his fate, but also reshape the future for all Burmese people for the next 50 years. Uh, the, the prince and his Austrian wife, they lived here in this house. But after 1962, the prince was detained with all the other members of government. So in order to get equality, they were planning to ask for federation at the parliament meeting. But before they could ask, General Navin, head of the army, he was already secretly planning to seize power. Before sunrise, he seized the power, so starting from the president, prime minister, members of parliament, including the ethnic leaders, they were all arrested and put in prison. And among the Shan chiefs that were arrested included the Sipo prince, Donald's father, and my father. So three of them too were in prison. 
During this time, wives and partners were given the privilege of writing letters to the imprisoned chiefs, except for Inga, who was being kept under house arrest in the Shan Palace. And according to the Revolutionary Council, the Sipo prince had never been arrested, but Inga had proof. It so happened during the six months before she found out that letters could be written, her husband from his prison room managed to smuggle out a short note. She knew her husband was arrested, but why should the military deny? So that started her wondering. Although she has evidence she didn't reveal because her husband was still under detention, so if the military found out that he smuggled out the note, he would be in trouble, so she didn't tell. And once in Rangoon, secretly searching, later on with help from the American Austrian embassies and some ex-parliamentarian friends, she found out he was no more. But the Revolutionary Council, they denied his arrest. So according to them, Sipor Prince regarded as missing. But although his death hasn't been confirmed by the Revolutionary Council, when Inga found out secretly that her husband was no more, she knew as a foreigner it would be dangerous to continue living in Burma without her husband under the military government. That's why in 1964 she decided to leave Burma. As Fern details these turbulent times in Burmese history from the comfort of her lounge room, she is surrounded by black and white photographs of the prince's wedding, her own wedding, and portraits of the royal family who came before her. But during the military leadership, all photographs, particularly of the missing prince, had to be hidden across the state. In turn, Fern and her husband Donald were effectively blacklisted by the community, and it would be decades before she would welcome guests through the rusted palace gates. Because we are related to the Shan chiefs, they thought that if they are seen very friendly with us, they would get into trouble with the military. This is more a personal question, but during those years before you could share your story, was it quite isolating? Yes, yes, yeah. uh, of course. But of course, uh, people don't come and visit. Even close friends don't come. But if we, if we go to town, of course, they, well, they welcome us, they greet us, only they don't they come here. Well, we, we lack an isolated, quiet life. Nowadays, since Myanmar, formerly known as Burma, has opened its borders, Fern's palace home is frequented by fascinated visitors. And apart from caring for her eight cats and 11 dogs, Fern refuses to let her family history and the story of the missing Prince of Sipo vanish entirely. Once you no longer live here, what will happen to the house? It will stay in the family. Children, young grandchildren will take, we hope they will take care because it belongs to history. And are they as passionate about the history as you are? Yes, they are, especially my grandson. You see, he grew up with travellers. He was born in 1995, 96, we started getting travellers. He was still a year old, but we encouraged him to, to meet travellers, so he was the most photographed baby. <laughs> And later on, of course, we, we encourage him, so he meets travellers, so he, his English is good, yeah. so he will take care. Living in Burma now and having the opportunity to share this with so many people, does that make you happy to be able to share this now? Yeah. Happy because we want the world, the country to know, otherwise it will be hidden. You see, different parts of Shan State, we have 33 states, they have their own history. But since this is the only palace that travels frequent, so we love to tell our history. Just in case you were wondering, 
Today in Myanmar, the political system is democratic. But even still, if you were to investigate the official records on the whereabouts of the missing Prince of Sipo, next to his name you would find the words, Missing in Action. Of all of my experience as a journalist and sitting down with people to learn and share their stories, sitting with Fern and learning about her life, her history, her family was probably the most rewarding moment for me. She was truly mesmerising. She gave me grandma feels. She was so lovely and welcoming. You couldn't stop talking about her after we left. She, She was mind blowing. She's a really, really special woman and I recommend highly that you should definitely visit the Shine Palace if you happen to be in Sipo. We need to mention to head out there and hear her full story. goes for the best part of an hour, so for us to try and condense that into less than 10 minutes was really, really difficult. If you are in SIPO, we cannot urge you enough to go and see her Mm -hmm. and hear the full story and learn a bit more about the area. Her gates only open for a small portion of the day between 3 and 5. She does ask for a small donation. This is just to help she and Donald with the upkeep of the palace. And on top of that, if you finished reading your travel book... Fern is an avid reader, particularly of English books. It's continuing her study. So if you feel like adding to her library, I think she'd actually love that. And let's face it, it's one less thing to carry. Sipo is a great little village. We had a wonderful time there. Part of the experience of getting there, though, is taking the train. Now, the train is super cheap. The journey, it's not that long. It's less than 200 kilometres. The time, though, is about 11 hours. In that time, you might feel like you're being turned into some sort of milkshake because you will be bounced (laughs) all over the place. You might be smacked in the face by some foliage because the windows are open. You'll eat some strange food from the vendors that wander up and down through the train. But it's an experience and I, I, I loved it. It was so much fun. Yeah. Plus I got to see that bridge that you were razzing me about in the intro. Oh, It's a yeah. really good bridge. It was a pretty good bridge. Quite the structure. <laughs> I, I've got to say I enjoyed the train. I think it's a one-off experience. I don't mm-hmm. think I'd go through it again. The other reason people head to Sipo is the trekking. There's a lot of trekking in the area. We took on one last week. Two days, one night. How do you feel now? How's your body holding up? Uh, <laughs> We're not I, fit, are we? I, I just didn't realise how much of a nana I am until we started trekking for about three and a half hours up hill with yeah. mud. I think I popped my hip. The trek <laughs> it was, it was, I'm okay. I'm fine. I'm fine. The trek itself, five hours, three and a half are uphill. The first hour and a half, though, are really nice. You're walking through rice paddies. It's very casual through a couple of small villages. But then you get to that uphill, which is cornfields and very, very remote homes. Mm-hmm. And little kids run out to play with you. They want you to lift them. There's no begging involved. They just want to interact with you, which is pretty special. It didn't distract me from the hills. No, I do realise we sound like a couple of whinges here, but it was bloody hard work, (laughs) but I'd still do it again. (laughs) Now, in organising to hike through Seapore, there is one very important thing to note. It is illegal to traipse through the mountains of the Shan State without a guide. There are posters along the walking routes that state this in black and white. Homestays will turn you away if you rock up to their door without a guide. And if we're completely honest... Having a guide means you won't get lost. Yeah, we would have gotten lost for sure. We did meet a group of hikers, though, who decided not to get a guide. They were just going to follow their GPS. It's a decision they now regret. And take a listen why. 
so I had a very interesting day, very character building day, quite scary, loads of different emotions. Um, I met a couple of people at breakfast and we knew we wanted to do some trekking. We'd seen that there's the tours and everything, but well, I would have considered myself to be quite an experienced hiker or mountaineer or trekker. So we'd heard about this one particular trek that was really lovely and we heard that there was a homestay at the end of it with a lovely lady so we we just looked it up on maps me <laughs> we were like yeah no problem it's only like 15 kilometers we can get there in like five hours or something so yeah we packed up our stuff we found out where the homestay was and we were like right yep got what we need so yeah we just went on the track and it was amazing everything was going smoothly it was all really nice and then it started raining a little bit and we thought we were getting a bit closer and then all of a sudden two locals on scooters were driving past us and they were like where are you going what are you doing why are you here you're not allowed to be here where's your guide so we were like well we're just we're just trekking like what's the problem we're just going for a walk and they were like well you can't you're not allowed and we we're like but why like why aren't we allowed and they're like well, you have to have a guide like you're not permitted and then he started mentioning something about like the fights and stuff and we just thought oh maybe some like fights between locals and like blah 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 so so we ignored their advice completely um and just kept walking then we knew we were coming to the village because there's like a big arch so yeah we walked through the arch first thing we see is two toddlers they're maybe about four years old. One of them is a monk, and they're both smoking cigarettes. I mean, if that wasn't the biggest early warning sign ever, so we were like, okay, let's go. Richard and I were a little bit more ahead, so we were walking, and Nicole and Anna were a little bit behind us, and I looked behind me, and there was three men walking, and one of them, very angry look on his face, and he had the biggest gun over his shoulder. And I just like stopped in my step and I was like, Richard, there's a gun. There's a man with a gun. And he was like, ah, ha, 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 you're joking, you're joking. I was like, no, he has a gun. Look. Oh, and I like nearly started to cry. I was so sad. So we just kept walking and we were like, right, where's this homestay? You know, we've got to find this homestay. We got to it like two minutes later and we got to it and it was just nothing. It was just like an open house with like nothing in there. And anyway, so this one guy who could speak English, the guide, came and spoke to us and he was like, where are you, like, what are you doing here? Where's your guide? You're not allowed to be here. Like, this is very illegal. Like, we were like, well, what are we going to do? Like, we have no options. We can't walk back. Like, it's beginning to get dark. There's no way. He said we could come and stay in the homestay. But still, we were just like really more confused, but we didn't know why. Through the evening, we started talking to the guide and he was like opening up and started telling us about all the facts and that's when it really hit us we really realized that we were those ridiculous stupid idiot tourists that could have got ourselves killed very easily so the guy he told us that the reason it was so dangerous is because that little wee village in the mountains is occupied and ran by the rebels so you know we were out for eight hours tracking being spied on probably by rebels with guns no guide you know i could have been like a foot away from a landmine i could have got myself blown up so it was just terrifying get a guide to track with a guide they tell you it for a reason and obviously they don't want to tell you the reason because they don't want to scare you we ignored the advice because we we thought they were just telling us to get a guide to make some money and we thought that we were, were fine without it but that's not the reason like it's the law like you it's the law here and it is actually really scary business mm-hmm.
Gemma, you're a lovely lass, and we're really glad that you survived to tell the tale. <laughs> you should have gotten a guide. <laughs> They're like 20 bucks per person, which includes all of your meals and accommodation. You know this. Uh, you've learned from it, though, which is a great thing. A bit of a warning there to having things like Google Maps and Maps Me are really great but can't always be trusted. We've come unstuck a couple of times. Mm -hmm. In Bagan, we were going to follow what was a road. It turned out it was a cornfield. Mm -hmm. You saw a snake. I almost bogged the motorbike, but we yeah. got through. So, yeah, just be careful with some of those digital mapping technologies because they're not always as amazing as they turn out to be. Great for restaurants, not so great for hikes. I'm Molly, I'm an Aussie currently living in Yangshui. The piece of music that's playing now was recorded at the Pongdao Pagoda Festival. It's one of the biggest festivals of the year here at In La Lake, and my favorite part about the festival is that I can buy awesome shirts for $2. You've been listening to Where Are You Taking Me? I'm Gabby Lyons. And I'm Nick King. Thank you for listening to our episode that we weren't even sure was going to eventuate from Myanmar. Myanmar has been a really fantastic experience. I could not recommend it more highly. And I think Myanmar now, after committing to it, <laughs> has found a really special place in my heart. Yeah, if you're flying to Yangon or Mandalay, don't rest on your first impressions. Move beyond that city shock because we guarantee once you get to some of these other areas, you're just going to love it. Mm. For more of Where Are You Taking Me, you can find us on Instagram at Where Are You Taking Me Pod. You can find us on Facebook, all the kinds of podcast listening devices, wherever you find us. And seriously, if you like it, please hit subscribe, leave us a review and share it with the ones you love. That's it for us. We're literally packing up our bags and getting on a bus for 12 hours. So try not to be jealous. <laughs> we will catch up with you again very soon. Our next episode coming from where, Gap? Wow! See you then. It's almost two o'clock in the afternoon. We've been on the train for 10 hours. Do we still love trains? I'm still having a really good time. I've really enjoyed this experience. I think it's, um, it's an interesting way to see the countryside of Myanmar. But I've caught up on all my podcasts, so that's good. Have you listened to the latest episode of Where Are You Taking Me? I have, actually. It was quite good. <laughs> quite good? I worked really hard on that. Oh, stop, let's not turn this. <laughs> Can I get a toot toot up in here? Toot toot. <laughs> <laughs>